Thank you for listening to Global Chat Radio, streaming from Tuart Hill here in Western Australia. And now we have for you another one of our series in Meet the Poet, with Peter Jeffrey interviewing fellow Perth poet Ben Riddle, who apparently is a performance poet, which I have never heard of before. Recently at the Moon Cafe, we observed a young man who calls himself Ben Riddle, but he can develop on that when we speak to him as of now, who did some very, very intriguing poetry, uh, delivered in a very, very intriguing way. And as a consequence of that, he was offering a book that he wrote with the strange title, The Cripple Who Is Whole. And as a consequence of that, was delivered in rap style. And uh, when I got hold of the book, I saw that it was indeed a very, very beautiful book. And I showed it to both uh, Lakshmi and uh, Leanne, and we both all think that we love the book. And uh, the thought came to me that went into it, all the work and effort and the events it describes were matched by the delightful illustration of your friend, <laughs> Ben, makes it, for me, an elegant collector's item that it would sit on my shelf and would, I think, rank alongside and it is high praise, Amanda Joy's uh, uh, lovely chapbook, Orchids, which is a long, slim book, just like uh, an orchid. All right, you begin then with your title, and you talk of an underground press. So could you tell us a bit about both of them? Yeah, of course. First of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. Second, I would just like to quickly honour the illustrator of my chat book, Justin Definitely. Holland. We love the drawings. Yeah. <laughs> Justin, in his unfortunately good sense, works as a chiropractor, but was a dear friend of mine from high school and was always artistically minded. And it was a real pleasure being able to work and collaborate with him and have some back and forth about the drawings. Because when I sent it to him, I was like, just, I have nothing in particular in mind. Just write what you feel is a useful response to it. So yeah, I, I've been deeply grateful for his collaboration on it um, and deeply admire just um, his mind's eye and just being able to draw emotion as much as anything that connects with the text as well. Yeah. For me, the text came from a writing challenge that a friend and I uh, did some years ago, or the initial point was was from that writing challenge. There is quite a popular novel writing challenge called National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo. My friend and I at the time couldn't find a poetry equivalent, so we we decided to try and uh, essentially write a poem a day for a month and sort of have, have some discipline with it. And I found that as I was sitting down to approach that sort of writing challenge that I was consistently fixating on the topic of my mental health and where I was at at the time. Mm. And I came to the conclusion about halfway through the month that I was like, I need to stop writing like this because it's not a healthy mm. fixation. I would argue that the arts can be this really, really beautiful space in which we can uh, develop healing, develop better understanding of ourselves and 
whether that's trauma, whether that's just life experience yeah. or just personal ideology. For me, it, I began to recognize that it was not a particularly healthy gambit. Um, so I decided to collect um, all the poems that I thought came from a healthier space or were poems that finished on a wholesome or fulfilling mm. note by the end of it and bring it together as a chapbook. Uh, there was a few things that I like. I had earmarked and I was like, just just finish this off. This is a really good concept and stick with it. And eventually that became The Cripple Who Is Whole. And something that was really important to me at the time was I was quite a high-level athlete. I was on a state team um, for gymnastics back in the day. Um, so I was functioning at this fantastic athletic and physical level, but I was also mm. struggling deeply with my mental health. So the title is a reference from a, a fantasy book that I loved and loved and loved yeah. with all my heart when I was when I was a kid as like a throwaway line within it. But the idea of being crippled by my mental health yeah. um, and trying to advocate um, that mental health be treated um, as a medical condition rather than anything that's stigmatized yeah. is really, really important to me. Because I would argue that broadly in the last 10, 20 years, uh, as a society, we're much better at discussing mental health. But I think we struggle with the nuance of that conversation. Mm. And what I really wanted to do with this text was to put face to the issue a little bit, but also unpack what we could be doing a little bit more than just an are you okay day or a flippant throwaway line here and there. I think the corporatization um, of, yeah, key events like are you okay day, it's fantastic that they're receiving support. But also, there's still still much more to be done, um, and I think, yeah, teaching people how to more, how to have more nuanced conversations is something that I really wanted to encourage with the book. And in, I was talking to Peter earlier off uh, before we started our interview about how my favourite thing in my artistic practice is hitting with not just the the converted or people that go out of their way to experience yeah. poetry, but to interact with people that walk into the wrong wrong room at a bar you know, West Coast Eagles jersey <laughs> and stay for 30 seconds of a four or five minute poem that I'm doing. And we'll just go back and talk to the boys over a beer about something that they've caught. Um, so whether that's particularly with this text, talking about mental health, I write a lot about my opinions on free speech and on masculinity, all of which I think need to be quite nuanced conversations. And a lot of people um, and people that I know and love um, have... I ideas or conceptions around ma masculinity and how and why we should have the sense of humor that we do and then really interrogate it after after high school so being able to catalyze conversations um and influence them to to some extent yeah, yeah. is something that's really important to my artistic practice um and is what i hope to do every time i get up on a stage is just leave someone with a lingering thought they want to go away and talk to yeah. a partner about or a friend about yeah Whatever. Mm. <laughs> and that led me to the other question of Underground Press. Yeah. So some years ago, I had the privilege of being the co-director of a little not-for-profit called the Said Poets Society. Mm. And Said Poets came out of myself and Matt Norman, who is a phenomenal poet in his own right. And I really hope that his work is still out there and findable because I have a few cheeky chat books from back in the day that he printed off at Officeworks, um, and I hope that new generations of poets can access it, because I think yeah. there's a lot of merit in his work, both in the message and also how, how and why he writes. But Matt and I had become friends in university. Matt and I met in our first year, and we were introduced as two friends that um, were poets, um, just sort of like, I remember someone pulling us aside, being like, Matt and Ben, you both write poetry. Um, you'll be the best of friends. And then we had three units together what, uh, in the second semester of our first year. 
And I bombed all of them, um, but <laughs> I was deeply grateful for getting to spend as much time as I did with Matt. His artistic practice and mine were almost entirely the opposite. He wrote very free verse. Um, yeah. At the time, I was really interested in writing sonnets and odes and like drawing on the history um, of what I had seen and been exposed to and trying to develop stuff echoing other traditions before I could really develop my own artistic practice. And then as we both started to break away from those initial conceptions that we had about poetry and our own artistic practice, um, we were both really lucky to be published mm-hmm. through a variety of publications towards the end of our first year, so we, while we were 18 or 19. Matt then promptly fell in love with a girl and then immediately afterwards became very, very interested in performance poetry, is how I remember that story going. (laughs) And he thankfully dragged me kicking and screaming into performance poetry. So we both started performing. Um, I... The first time I ever got up on stage and did poetry yeah. um, was 2014 at an event called Poems on Oak at the University of WA. Right. Um, so I'm very, very grateful for them creating stages for new and emerging voices. Yeah. Um, I just letting people try. <laughs> <laughs> then as Matt finished his degree, because he was a yeah. very clever young chap that finished his degree on time, whereas I dragged mine out for as long as I possibly could, we started running this little not-for-profit where we would go around to schools, um, work with other not-for-profits and work with young people. So anyone in the kind of age range of 14 to 25, we would go and run um, performance poetry workshops for. Mm. Um, and more than anything else, what was important to us, because I would argue that poetic device is just a way of telling better stories. So whether yeah. that is something that you put back into poetry or whether that is just something that you'll start using as you're embellishing a story or trying right. to explain what's in your mind's eye to someone else. We wanted to empower young people to take yes. more ownership of their language and the way that they told stories to tell better and more persuasive stories. So we did that for a few years. Um, and as one of our um, little side projects, we were running a thing called writing room where just for un- between two and five on a Sunday afternoon, uh, every fortnight, I think it was, we would go yes. and sit at Greens and Co., which was this beautiful little cafe in Leaderville. And myself and Matt would be there if anyone wanted to come and receive feedback for, for poetry that they were working on. Or for some people, just here's some space. Come and mm. set it, mm. block out part of your week to, to edit or to write or anything that could be useful for your artistic practice. Perth Underground was hopefully at the time going to be the extension of that um and it was something that i was going to step away from said poets to do or run next to i suppose is probably more accurate um because i really liked the idea there's some really beautiful small presses around perth um in the sense that like a small press is generally at least in the american terms um a press that has a turnover of less than two million dollars a year which in terms of the indie and grassroots art very mm. achievable <laughs> yeah. in not cracking that um so uwa press is uh quite is broadly speaking considered uh an in, uh, a small press but in in australia vagabond quite yeah. openly talk about how a best-selling poetry book in australia is about a thousand copies right. and while that there are particularly more academic writers like John Kinsella, who we're talking yeah. about off, off air, who are able to access much broader audiences. Um, and I yeah. would argue Kinsella is a fantastic example yeah. of stuff that you could... I could write essays on his work. What a genius. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, for just for art that is aesthetic um, or pleasurable, yeah, mm. a thousand copies is phenomenal. So what I was really interested in doing is creating a halfway step between people who write 
for their own pleasure as a hobby and trying to develop them so that they could start offering uh, full manuscripts or collections to serious mm. and established small presses that could then help them access a wider audience. Mm. So while there are some fantastic uh, fantastic parallel projects, indie presses like Muller Muller Press um, yeah. and Sam Fields runs a different press that I can't remember the name of. And so much honor to, to both of them uh, for the way they uplift voices. But I was really interested in running a project that was more about mentorship. So yeah. being yeah. able to work with people, first of all, in how to create chapbooks that yes. tell a more powerful or emotional or evocative um, narrative than just the simple pieces being next to each other to take people on a journey in the same way yeah. that instead of releasing singles for music you might create an album that is a, a greater experience yeah then also helping young and emerging poets interact with people who are more established so for for younger poets that have a bit of a hip-hop streak maybe we sit them down maybe we find them hip-hop artists that they can interact with for people who are trying to do more I, I would call it established kind of art forms where they're playing with grammar and what is a word and yeah. Mm. yeah more abstract use of the english language then let's let's partner with them with that yeah. um because as much as i have a bit of a mm. I, I have a ba but i recognize that there's probably people who know a lot more about things than i yeah. do <laughs> um yeah trying to help them partner with people that can actually develop their artistic practice okay that's a superb outline of all that you've been up to but we I thought we would proceed now through your book and uh, I put the, the fact that uh, I felt that uh, you have an excellent introduction at, that you call a letter f from the poet and it interestingly posits your almost obsessional interrogation of your poor mental health at the expense of the wide-ranging interests of a more stable poet and his output and its strong desire to walk past it and move back into the joy of free writing because as you pointed out uh, it was obsessional and later when we see that you were even in therapy and things like that <laughs> but there was something in you that was even querying that you know, which I thought was uh, the excellent part of the book. So would you like to comment on then this phrase? Healing was, I realise, more important than bleeding on a stage for entertainment. So the act of you being on the stage in a confessional mode probably coming out to the audience as mental disturbance. You call that bleeding? Yes. Something that's really important to me within the broader politics of yes. spoken word is poetry slam is a competitive form yep. of, of poetry. In an Australian context, you get two minutes to get up on a stage. Yep. You get to communicate a poem. If you go over, you start losing points. If you win, often you get to 
have money. More yeah. importantly, you get to call yourself a slam champion and pretend that you're yeah. a wrestler. Um, <laughs> in the United States, um, there are college competitions yes. um, of the same. But something that uh, has always stood out to me and has become more poignant over the last 10 years yeah. is it's very hard to create a complex metaphor or profound enough imagery that you can resonate with an audience in a two-minute frame. Yeah. Whereas being able to stand up on stage and talk about trauma and expressing yeah. the, the simple merit of survival is easier. Yeah. Now, it's super important that everyone that is telling stories about being a victim, I want to honor that and I admire that bravery. Yeah. Also, I think that as older and more experienced poets, yeah. we need to be mindful of the example that we set for the young people. It is not helpful to encourage 15, 16, 17-year-old poets to get up on stage and relive trauma without actually addressing what that looks like after. Yeah. Because mm. often when they do that, they get rounds of applause and people yeah. come up for 30-second interactions, be like, that was brave. Yeah. And then pursue no kind of aftercare or no kind of pursuant chase-up follow-up to make sure that yeah. we're uh, creating healthy spaces for our, for our younger poets and emerging writers. Yeah. Um, and within this text, I really, really wanted to talk about my mental health, yeah. but I wanted to do so in a way that advocates go to therapy. Mm. advocates healing is more important than the clicks you get while you are performing it is more important to heal and address um your own journey than it is to win a slam mm. um and yeah differentiate because i yeah over the years i've definitely seen some people get up and talk about some really horrific things on stages um mm. trigger warnings are often something that is hard to do around slams um mm. in this because when you start opening, you, often often you're tired from the first word that you say. So if you spend 15 seconds extra, explaining that yeah. you're going to talk about trauma, you've minimized the amount of time. So it's, there's almost a disincentive to not do that. Yeah. So over the years, I've seen people get up and just confess yeah. stuff that's happened to them with quite a lack of imagery and metaphor. And again, there's merit in just telling stories. But yeah. I would argue that as an artist, you... When you get up on stage, there should be a social contract between yeah. you and the audience that you should be trying to do something entertaining. You should be trying to impart what is genuinely to your belief, um, a useful message. And with few exception, you should be aiming to leave the audience better for your performance than if you had not got up on stage in the first place. No. And if all you're doing is splitting open other people's stitches, then I would argue you were falling short of that social contract. And that was something I was very mindful of with the book. Mm. Now, as I explained right at the very beginning, our attention to you was drawn by the Moon Cafe. Mm -hmm. And uh, you stood in front of the mic. <laughs> you did what a lot of young modern poets do. You got out your telephone mm -hmm. uh, or whatever. And you took your right hand like a pointer. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you moved into rap. And yeah, uh, my knowledge of UWA and mm. the fact that you had gone through a pretty conventional, historical, uh, chronologically based uh, course, uh, obviously with different interpretations and different yeah, aspects, that uh, you'd won the, the Simpson Tribe. Mm -hmm. And then when I ask you what the subject of the Simpson Prize was, yeah. can you just expand on that a bit? Because I think it will uh, indicate to the audience that you certainly knew what 
the academies uh, conventionally would regard as proper material um, for the students uh, to be studying and call it poetry. Yeah, um, so I was fortunate enough to win the Fred Simpson Prize in my second attempt at it. Um, the year before the 2015 prize, I lost out to Daniel Ortlep, who was a dear yeah. friend of mine and is a fantastic poet, um, and it has a beautiful mind for yeah. world building and construction with a, a very short amount of words. So losing the Fred Simpson Prize yeah. in 2015 was something that was really, really useful for my artistic practice and made me step, a step back yeah. um, and really query how I was going and why I was going about the way that I was writing. Yeah. And as I was first developing my artistic practice, I was very inspired by alternative literature in the States or Outlet, yeah. um, which was a whole bunch of artists that were writing poetry in email or on Tumblr or in tweets. Um, Tao Lin famously has a text that is essentially just a collection of his tweets and the absurd nature of it. Megan Boyle, over five years, tweeted between every five and 60 minutes that she was awake yeah. and just collected the entire thing as a text called Live Blog. Um, and being able to push the boundary that we are able to access was something that was really, really important to my artistic practice before I started touching yeah. spoken word or performance poetry. Coming back to the university, um, it was really, really useful for me to see a whole bunch of artistic movements that did that with the with what they were able to access. Mm. So for me, poetry is short form storytelling, whether you were trying to encapsulate yeah. an image, like famously Wordsworth will write endlessly about flowers. I've never had the knack for it. Don't have the attention yeah. span. But being able to communicate the experience of seeing a flower is still yeah. a story. I think wartime poetry is really significant because yeah. it's all these people being able to capture moments um, yeah. and be able to pass that forward. Um, for me, um, the Fred Simpson piece that I did was a response poem to a Harry Baker piece called Paper People. <laughs> Paper People won the World Slam Cup in, I want to say, 2011. <laughs> The way the World Slam Cup works is after you go through a couple qual uh, qualifiers um, for, Har for Harry's year, it was in Paris. So he performed his poem in the native language, as did everyone. Um, and then the judges had access to translations. So they got to judge the aesthetic of a poem by ear or the lyricism of it, and then also be able to look at the meaning and the metaphor and the way that it was conveyed. Mm. And as much as some of that starts being lost mm. through translation, being able to sit with the image imagery and the way that poems were constructed was really, really important to me. Um, and as I was running workshops, paper people was something that I definitely pushed because I love it as a poem. Mm. Um, so I wrote a piece called Origami that very much talked about, yeah, tried to expand on the same sort of metaphors and look at building self and visualizing self and then being able to reconstruct it, if not on a whim, then through being able to look at different folds in our personality um, and how we construct ourselves for other people but the act of origami is for ourselves mm. i wrote it in quite firm stanza and tried to play with a lot of beyond like imagery um and metaphor like it was really important to me that people could recognize that there was everything in my artistic practice stands on the shoulders of the people that have come before me of course. whether they are giants or whether they are tiny tiny people Everything that I am should be informed by the history of literature. The Very. merit of my artistic practice is my own context and what I can access that is new or the experience 
and the voyeuristic integrity of what I can see in the world around me. Right. Now, coming from there, mm. you do shift into a most courteous and thoughtful set of thanks uh, for your dear friends. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily move towards um, your personal mm -hmm. uh, friends, but more, if you like to call them your artistic friends. Yeah. The people who helped you through um, the dilemma of um, your mental disturbances mm -hmm. and then opened the book to us readers and you even ask us to come in and join and, and, and comment. There were three people that uh, sprang to mind and I wondered if you would uh, like to tell us a tiny bit about them. Yeah, of course. Jack Mazzotto, John Mandela and Matt Norman. Well, in a way, we've already heard about Matt yeah. and he and his lovely girlfriend <laughs> led you into performance. Yeah. Yeah, but apart from them? Just on that, Matt Brief, I can't remember yeah. if he ended up finishing his master's, but something that became very important to him and what he was originally going to write his master's thesis on was the idea of slow journalism. So all the time there is a plethora of ideas that we are yeah. exposed to, particularly in online spaces, in the way that we have quick turnover in fashion um, and consumer rules yes, and Matt wanted yes. to slow it down. Um, so he wrote this fantastic chapbook called, I believe it was the Red Book. Um, mm. And he took dirt, he drove up to Karajini, grabbed all this red dirt, poured it in little glad wrap bags oh. and shook it all up. Um, I've got that. Yeah. Oh, it's a great, And great that's book. Matt Norman. Yes. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> um, and bless him, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if any of his work is online beyond what I imagine would be buried deep, yeah. in, deep in the history of voice works yeah. <laughs> by okay. now. Um, but yeah, I really hope that Matt ends up releasing a collection or something right. cool. Because bless uh, him. Now back to Jack yeah. Mazzotto and John Mandela. <laughs> Jack Mazzotto and John both had the sheer misfortune of meeting me at university. Uh, the three of us were <laughs> this happy, happy trio of musketeers. Jack... Both of them are engaged in performance poetry for a bit, yes. um, but we all had a variety of uh, writing pursuits, um, and particularly in the era that I was first writing Cripple, yeah. the three of us would go and sit at the Moon Cafe, um, yeah. generally quite late at night after we'd all knocked off work. Yeah. So we'd get there at like 10 and sit and write for three hours, and occasionally yeah. we'd get excited about a line one of us had come up with. Um, and we'd, yeah, we'd all laugh and drink coffee late at night, and it was, yeah. a, it was a really beautiful, uh, beautiful yeah. time in my life. Um, John came from a background of classical voice um, and did yeah. completed mm. his undergraduate at UWA and is currently at, I believe it's the University of South Australia, but yeah, pursuing musical theatre um, and is just a, a gorgeous writer um, yeah. and is definitely someone to keep an eye out for if you are ever watching Fringe shows because um, he recently, oh, I forget the name of the show, but yeah, deb debuted a cabaret um, at... Adelaide Fringe. Jack is currently devoting himself to Dungeons and Dragons. Um, bless him. He managed to make a living off of it for 18 months as he took, as he travelled around um, Vietnam and Cambodia, which I think is phenomenal. Oh, that is the dream wow. of every 15-year-old. Um, but he would get employed by different bars to just run Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> games um, because he is simply a profound storyteller. I quickly want to honour um, Joshua Furman, who was also really, really important to that era and my life. Um, Josh is currently in a production of Adam's Family, so if you have a chance, go see it at the Regal Theatre. It, its run is starting quite soon. Um, and Jared Cooper, who was really, really important to that era of my life as well, and always will be. 